Bass players and musicians of the world at large. I am Wyatt Walker Ware. You are listening to episode number 18 of the Better Bass Podcast. And today I'm working on giant steps, talking about a few different ways to practice improvising over giant steps, improvising over any set of chord changes or any song, really, and the approach that I've been taking to, uh, to learning this tune and working this stuff out. This is my first attempt at really tackling... Uh, any sort of train changes at any point in my musical career. It's something I've kind of been, frankly, scared of for no good reason for a very long time. In my saxophone playing days, I never learned how to play giant steps. I sort of learned the, um, ooh, what's it, what's it even called? Fifth house, the, uh, the hot house slash what is this thing called love, Coltrane changes contrafact. I sort of learned that tune, sort of learned to play over it a little bit, Never really got the hang of it, had a few licks and patterns that I would run over, and never got to the point where I could improvise fluidly over it. So I'm considering the last uh, the last about two weeks, week and a half, two weeks of practice that I've spent with this progression and with this song to be my first real deep dive into Coltrane changes into the major third matrix of chords, right? And I'm realizing now that some of that may have just completely flown over y'all's heads. So if you're not familiar with the Coltrane Matrix, if you're not familiar with uh, giant steps in those chord changes, I recommend you check out any number of other podcasts or YouTube videos that talk about how, uh, how giant steps is structured and how it's written and how the chords move and how the keys modulate by major thirds. There are uh, pretty much anybody else is going to be better at explaining that than me. I'm not really a I'm not really much of a theory teacher. I'm much much more application oriented. But I wanted to get into that. I wanted to get into the application and talk about some of the ways that I've been practicing this tune. And what you just heard me doing is a great starting point. Playing it just totally a cappella, no accompaniment, just improvising over the changes. <laughs> Just like that, just playing through chorus after chorus, trying to come up with original ideas, trying not to repeat the same things too much, trying to actually improvise and not fall into just patternistic things that are easy and under my fingers, and really exposing the time and sound. That's the main advantage of this method. That's the main advantage over improvising a cappella and working on soloing with no accompaniment whatsoever is it totally, totally exposes your sound. And if you're listening back to it and you have a a pretty well-trained sense of internal time, then it really exposes your time, provided that you do record yourself and listen back. I find when I make 
time mistakes, when I make rhythm mistakes, playing acapella, when I rush or drag, I don't always feel it in the moment. Most of the time I do anymore, I would say a year ago prior to getting into my sort of really, really intense heavy metronome work, I wouldn't have felt it at all. Since getting into a lot of that and since really training up my internal clock, I can feel it in the moment a little bit better, but there are always things that reflect on the recording that don't quite feel wrong in the moment. Now, that kind of brings me to the disadvantage of this method, which is that there's no immediate accountability happening. There's no instant accountability for the rhythm. There's no instant accountability for the harmony. If you play a wrong note, if you play a note that's dissonant in an unpleasant way, you're not going to have harmonic context around you to really hear that. If you maybe mess up the form or something and don't realize that, I've caught myself doing that on recordings before, on listening back to recordings of myself practicing before, Especially tunes with longer forms doesn't really happen to me with giant steps because it's only 16 bars and it sort of just all flows out, right? But I'll say on a, on a tune that has two A sections, a bridge, and an A section, oh, I just played four A sections in a row, or oh, I just played two A's and then a bridge and then went back to the top of the form and came back with the head in and didn't realize. With playing a cappella like this, playing company, uh, unaccompanied, you don't have that accountability there. So to introduce some accountability for the time and the rhythm and some accountability for rushing and dragging, introduce a metronome. I'm tapping a tempo in on my, on my little metronome right here. The most basic form of this, in for, for a swing context, for playing, playing ding-ding-a-ding uh, ride cymbal jazz like this, is to put the metronome on beat two and four. One, two, three, four, or one, two, three, four. totally screwed up the first uh the first four bars of that second chorus there but you get the idea that gives you some accountability for the time i'm sure you heard the couple of moments where i went for an idea that was a little complex rhythmically and i rushed or dragged a little bit and i was able to listen back and correct it this is not my favorite way to use a metronome to practice improvising over songs i prefer to use a wider spacing something like this something like beat two only one, two, three, four, oh, one, two, three, four. Something like that, that 
trains your own internal time a little bit better and doesn't have you leaning on the metronome as much. It allows you to work on rhythmic phrasing, work on laying back, getting a little more, a, a little less metronomic feel, a little more natural feel into your playing. That, that sort of, you know, the metronomic time feel, the... That sort of really stiff time feel that people, some teachers, certain uh, certain bass teachers claim is a distinct disadvantage of metronome practice enough to warrant not metronome, not using a metronome at all ever, I think is kind of a myth because they fail to do this. They fail to practice this way with a wider, broader metronome spacing that just delineates where the beat is, gives you a teeny tiny bit of a point of reference without making your subdivision stiff. It keeps your internal tempo clear and allows you to move the time around in a way that's most natural to you and in a way that feels good for your phrasing. Now, if you haven't ever done this before, if you haven't ever practiced with a metronome widely spaced like this, probably don't start with it on beat two and definitely don't start with giant steps unless you really, really know that tune really well and that's the most familiar piece of improvisation in your musical vocabulary, but I, I highly doubt that's the case for anybody listening to this podcast or anybody at all. Um, start with something a lot simpler. Use this wide metronome spacing and just play, just play even over one chord, just a purely modal thing, purely, purely Picadorian scale. See how rhythmically complex you can get and still stay on. And if you're struggling to just get eighth notes out and stay in time, then like I said, maybe don't start with beat two. Don't start with beat four. Just move the metronome to beat one of every bar. Play at a tempo that's comfortable for you. If that's slower, that's slower. If you have a hard time feeling slow tempos in the first place, start at a medium tempo that's easy for you and then work your way down to those slow tempos. That's a way I practice this a lot. That's a way I develop my time a lot is just by playing um, playing ballads, playing super mechanically simple things that are very easy, very facile on the bass and just dropping the metronome to really, really slow. I'm just going to try this. I haven't actually done this in a while. I'm going to try this is quarter note equals 60 on beat one of every bar. I'm going to do giant steps just the roots of the chords basically just playing the playing the changes as a ballad here dragging mm -hmm. 
that is way, way, way more difficult than it sounds. And to me, that's way more difficult than uh, than walking the changes at up tempo. That's a real challenge. And if you haven't ever tried that before, if you haven't ever tried to just play half notes at 60 BPM with the metronome set on 15 BPM, that's the setting here to play at 60 to a quarter note. It's 15 beats to a whole note. If you haven't ever tried that, then just test yourself and give it a go. And I bet you're going to struggle just like I was at the beginning. And every time I every time I play this, I mean, you heard at the beginning of this, I was kind of all over the place for about the first six bars and then I managed to lock in after a while but it takes a second it takes a second to get the hang of it it's a really really good challenge and it's also a great way to familiarize yourself with the root motion of a song that's how I started practicing giant steps in the first place was literally only playing the roots of the chords I think I was doing it unaccompanied at the time but I just wanted to memorize the root motion and I wanted to get that in my ears as much as possible I wanted to repeat it a lot so I just played and so on a hundred times over and over again until it became it became second nature to my ears and then I had that as a mental point of reference to start playing walking bass lines and eventually to start soloing over it that's generally the order I go in if I'm learning something if I'm trying to learn to improvise over some harmony that's really unfamiliar is I go from root motion to playing a bass line using lots of roots to starting to solo over it and maybe I work actually playing the chords themselves in there somewhere I have yet to do that with giant steps I'm sure I will at some point it just hasn't come up in my practice routine for this because I've been focusing on developing fluidity in the linear ideas and fluidity in the in the soloing in the single note ideas getting through the changing key centers smoothly with good phrasing and good time and not having to think about the harmony so much. Now, back to the original topic of improvising with a metronome and soloing with a metronome, it still kind of has its downfalls. The main one for me personally being that it doesn't train my phrasing that well. It doesn't make me leave space in my ideas. I have to really, really be conscious about that to not just play, maybe not necessarily a constant stream of eighth notes, but not just play phrase, 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 and leave no space in between. And I am kind of intentionally playing like that, so there isn't a ton of dead air on the podcast. I'm also trying to be tasteful with the phrasing, but... I find that I fall into that habit. If I practice a song and I've only practiced it a cappella or with a metronome without any harmonic context, then sometimes my phrasing just sucks, especially a jazz standard, especially something where I'm doing a lot of a lot of linear stuff playing eighth notes. Sometimes my phrasing is really, really bad by the time I get to play it on stage and I'm just playing idea after idea after idea because that's how I'm used to executing it in the practice room and my listening suffers for it. I don't communicate as well with the band. So the solution to this is the third practice method I've got in the book for this episode, which is kind of the most obvious one, is to play with a backing track or a recording. 
if you can't get, if there is not a good backing track that is recorded by actual musicians who are competent, who play with good time and time feel and sound and dynamic control on their instruments, if you can't get that, if all you have is a band in a box backing track or the, God forbid, the iReal Pro backing track, my opinion is that those are not worth using at all. Those are, are, are garbage. They feel terrible. They feel terrible to play over. There's no, there's no real phrasing about them, and it kind of defeats the purpose of contextualizing your music. I've developed a lot of bad habits from playing over those backing tracks, um, particularly in my in my saxophone playing time, but also early on in learning to play the bass, I was using stuff like that. I was using those band in a box tracks with the with the bass deleted, and it can be a an okay tool to start learning the harmony and figuring out the harmony by ear, but the better tool is always going to be a real recording an album version of the, the the tune that you're playing with, a band that you like, a band that you admire, music that sounds good to you, and just jamming along to the track, jamming along to the record. There aren't a whole lot of recordings of Giant Steps around that are at a manageable tempo for me where I'm at in the process with this tune. I'm obviously, I'm playing this at like half of the original tempo, something something to that effect. But I did find a really, really good backing track by a fella named Simon Peter King, a great guitarist. His guitar is his primary instrument, but he plays with pretty much equal facility on drums and fretless bass and on keys. Actually, I've heard Simon play some, some, pretty, some pretty crazy stuff on keys. Simon Peter King, great YouTube channel, whole bunch of cool backing tracks on there. He's got some, uh, some bassless versions of his tracks as well for like jazz standards and even for funk tunes and just random chord progressions with grooves sometimes. Highly recommend all of Simon's stuff, but he has a Giant Steps track that's at a tempo that is, it's, it's at a tempo that is okay for me. It's at a tempo that I can deal with. And I'm gonna I'm gonna play over this a couple of choruses. Uh, wrong note right off the bat. There we go. Perfect. And I'm not super fluid with this, and I've also got, uh, I'm also experiencing some microphone anxiety as I'm recording the podcast here, but you can already hear in the way that I'm playing that the context of real music being played around me, of real instruments being played around me, even though it's just coming through the speakers in front of me and it's not actual musicians, it's not really air moving in a room, still causes my ideas to be different. It causes my phrasing to be different. It gives me a lot more 
inclination to leave space for other things to happen in the music, because that's the entire point of, of leaving space in a solo, right? The space is not meant to be dead air with a, with a iReal Pro or Abersol track playing behind you, you know? There's supposed to be some, some interaction and some musical ideas happening. And, of course, there's no substitute for actually playing songs with other people, with other musicians, but a really good track like this, or a record that you really enjoy, a record that you like the way it feels and the way it sounds, gets you very, very close. It gets you an approximation of playing in a band, and that's really the best we can do in a practice room. That's the best we can do to bring our performance mindset into the practice room and work on our phrasing, work on our execution, and quit thinking about all the the harmony and the specifics and the little distractions and start taking a taking a broader approach, you know? My goal with this whole thing is to play giant steps like a real song. I want to take this tune that's so often played as an exercise and I want to make it into something that's pleasant to listen to. You know, I want to create pretty music out of this. That's where I'm trying to go here. And I'm certainly not there yet. Still sounds very exercisey when I play it. I don't have a ton of fluidity melodically, and I still really have to think pretty hard about target notes and about what the next chord change is. Otherwise, I'll get lost, just like you've heard me do a couple of times in this podcast already. I hope this gives you some inspiration. I hope this gives you some ideas to populate your own practice routine and work on improvising in maybe ways that you haven't before and work on your time and your dynamic control and your sound and all of these things that are so important to the the creation of good music. If you're enjoying the show, head on over to betterbass.substack.com and subscribe to the mailing list. You'll get every episode delivered straight to your inbox. The Substack is the home of the podcast. It is the home of the discussion. If you'd like to leave a comment, leave me some feedback. Anything you have to say, I'd love to hear it. I want to get some really high-quality bass discussion, some really high-quality practice and performance discussion going on the Substack board. Leave a comment on this episode. If you've got suggestions for future episodes, would love to hear those as well. And until next time, let's all be better bass players together, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.